millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode number 42 of the Scottish History Podcast. My name is Owen Innes and last week we were talking about the Vikings in Scotland. And I mentioned in that episode that I was going to go back and tell you a little bit about something called Maze How. So this week that's exactly what we're going to be focusing on with a little bit of additional information on Neolithic Orkney. So join me as we learn a little bit about Maze How in Orkney. So although last week we were talking about the Vikings in Scotland, this week we are once again going to go back in time. The reasoning here is that uh, enabled to reveal some of the secrets of Neolithic Orkney, I believe that it was best to introduce the Vikings first. The Neolithic period lasted in Scotland from around 4000 BC until 2500 BC. The heart of Neolithic Orkney is set on low-lying land next to the two lochs, Loch Harry, a freshwater loch, and Loch Stenes, a seawater loch. The whole area is then further surrounded by an almost natural amphitheatre of hills. Nowadays, when you look at Loch Harry and Loch Stenes, you would not believe that they were different, as they are separated now only by a dual carriageway-sized natural causeway. However, 5,000 years ago, the water levels would have been significantly lower than they are today, and both lochs, in fact, would have been freshwater lochs. Now, before the Neolithic period, Orkney would have had a considerable amount of natural woodland. However, as the settlers began to stay, the woodland rapidly disappeared to the point where around the time Maze Howe was constructed, the landscape would have looked very similar to the way that it looks now. The land would have featured small plots for growing crops, grazing land for sheep and cattle, and heather moorland. Nowadays we have a large number of Neolithic sites on Orkney, however a few have been lost unfortunately due to coastal erosion, sites being dismantled for building materials or due to pissed off farmers with a shitload of dynamite. 
Now we shall never know the full truth surrounding some of the things which we will be talking about today. But as time goes on, we do start to achieve a slightly better understanding, of course, with the more in which we learn. Now, when people think of Orkney, most people will think of, of course, Scarabray or the Ring of Brodgar. However, for me, it's May's How that left me utterly speechless when I saw it for the first time. Have I mentioned on this podcast before that Orkney is my favourite place on earth? Now, Mays Howe is described as the finest chambered tomb in northwestern Europe, and the mound can be seen for miles around due to the flat landscape that surrounds it. The term Howe, H O W E, is Norse for hill. However, where Mays, M A E S, comes from, we don't know. Now, Mays Howe was built around 5,000 years ago and its positioning seems to be of great importance as it can be seen from all of the other monuments in the surrounding area such as the Ring of Brodgar and the Stones of Stennes which are very close by as well. There are many other tombs on Orkney but Mays Howe is very, very elaborate and very, very sophisticated. Its construction was entirely hand-built from stones carried from the large cliffs. A ditch was dug around it and all of this was done using no metal tools or machinery. It took great spirit and commitment to build this absolutely amazing structure. The tomb itself is extremely complex and is more than just the grassy mound that it appears to be. The tomb itself consists of eight individual parts, and I'll go through each of these individual parts. Now, I am going to just say that I I used the uh, official souvenir guidebook from Historic Scotland uh, that I got when I was at Maze Howe as part of my research for this. So I am essentially using a page out of their guidebook, but I think it explains it the best way. So I've, I've taken it and I've slightly simplified it. Um, just to make it sort of obviously slightly easier listening for us. But so, so yeah, the, the, the tomb itself consists of eight parts. So the first part was the platform. The mound sits on a circular platform dug from a glacial mound and then evened out using local clay. The second part is the ditch. This sits on the outside of the platform. Think almost in a way like a moat. The ditch would have been around 2 metres or 6.5 feet deep and there was a large standing stone at the edge of the ditch at some point. Now whether this was there before or after the how was built, we'll never know. The third part is the wall and the bank. Evidence shows that a stone wall originally surrounded the how, however, was covered at some point by turf, which then formed the bank. The fourth part is the drain. Now, this stone drain was possibly part of an even earlier structure, perhaps maybe a house, and it is located near the entrance of the tomb. Now, as you access the tomb, you actually go uphill. Um, so the, uh, the, the, the actual passageway is essentially also a drain as well. Now, the fifth part is the inner structure. 
The central chamber consists of a well-built wall that steps upwards, almost like a staircase to the ceiling. Now, obviously, it would be like you're looking at the underside of a staircase. It's extremely impressive to see. The sixth part is the outer walls. These are two stone walls that help to retain the interior walls, which in part leads us on to part number seven, the clay layer, because there would have been clay in between these two outer walls. Now, the whole tomb is then covered in a layer of clay, uh, which was taken from Loch Harry and has uh, lots of smaller stones in put into it as well. And finally, part number eight of the structure is the outer skin. And once again, that was a skin made from even more clay from Loch Harry and a layer of turf placed on top. Now the finished tomb as we see it today then is around 35 metres or 115 feet across and 7 metres or 23 feet in height. It is an absolute engineering marvel and it is almost completely watertight as well. Now to reach the tomb itself you have to access through a narrow but quite long passageway. The passageway itself is around 9 metres or 29 feet in length, which takes you alongside the largest stone used to build the tomb. Now, this stone actually spans the entire length of the passageway, and the stone weighs around 3 tonnes. Once you're inside the tomb, you're met with a square room approximately 4.7 metres or 15 feet across, by 4.5 metres or 14 feet high. Each of the walls are built from using huge long slabs of stone meticulously aligned to create flush vertical walls. The roof did actually cave in around the Viking Age and was repaired during its excavation in 1861. Before the excavation in 1861, there were those pesky Victorians. Uh, they, they seemed to love kind of breaking into stuff and taking stuff and changing stuff. Clava Cairns just outside Inverness is a perfect example where there was a great uh, stone circle. And I'm sure if you like Outlander, you've probably heard of Clava Cairns before. Well, Clava Cairns just uh, nearby the Culloden battle site there. Uh, the Victorians came along, they took some of the stones from the burial cysts in order to make their walls and then they built a bloody road right the way through the middle of it as well. So the pesky Victorians, they also got their hands a little bit on Maze Howe before the excavation took place. Now when the new roof was added on, uh, the, the, the stone was purposefully uh, painted white, however, to distinguish the genuine Neolithic parts from the rebuilt, more recent parts. The tomb features three side cells that would normally be used to house the bones of the dead. However, only a single trace of bone was ever found. It was part of a human skull. Um, so, for only one part of a bone to be found there... That's, you know, a little bit confusing to the, you know, the archaeologists and the historians because then it's, 
then we're starting to think of well, what exactly was Maze How used for? These are it's it looks like a burial chamber. It is a burial chamber, but where are the bodies that are supposed to be in there that are usually found in these particular types of structures? Now, what we do know about Maze How, however, is that for the three weeks before and after the shortest day of the year, being the twenty-first of December. The light from the setting sun spectacularly shines down the long passageway and illuminates the burial cell on the far back wall of the chamber. As the sun sinks behind the hills of the Isle of Hoy, the sun first strikes the nearby barn house standing stone before the show begins in Maze Howe Chamber. As with traditions mentioned in both Halloween episodes and the Christmas episode of this particular podcast, the end of winter was a good thing for these Neolithic farmers. So basically, Maze Howe also acted as an elaborate calendar. So in terms of burials, like I said before, only a single trace of bone was found at Maze Howe. However, this could be attributed to the numerous break-ins by... Of course, those pesky Victorians I mentioned before, however, most likely by the descendants of the Vikings, the Norsemen. In the 1100s, the Norse broke into Maze Howe on numerous occasions. During these break-ins, they left 33 runic inscriptions and 8 drawings. Norse graffiti. The Norse mentioned Maze Howe, or Orknahaur, um, I'm going to spell that because I've probably pronounced it wrong. It's O-R-K-A-H-A-U-G-R. Uh, so I think it's Orknahar. So the Norse mentioned Maze Howe or Orknahar in the Orkneyinga saga written in 1200s and is well worth a read if you haven't actually read that before. You can get I think it's on Penguin Books. Uh, so you can actually get a copy of that. I, I've got a copy of it and it is uh, it is a very, very fascinating read. So um, so that again is the Orkneyinga Saga. Uh, so that is O-R-K-N-E-Y-I-N-G-A Saga. Um, very well worth a read there. Now the times in which I have personally spent in Maze Howe have been awesome awesome experiences and I it is one of those things that I always recommend everyone at some point to do. Get yourselves to Orkney, get yourselves to Maze Howe. Uh, if you are going to visit Maze Howe you do need to book. Now obviously at this moment in time we're going through a global pandemic, no one's going to be able to go to Maze Howe at this moment in time but when that opportunity arises and you go to Orkney, you do need to book in order to see Maze Howe. So you do need to be quick. It does sell out very, very, very quickly. And I would imagine that once the tourism industry picks up again, it will be very, very, very busy anyway. So, But yeah, so again, the times that I've spent in Orkney and of course in Maze Howe have been absolutely spectacular. If you would like to hear more about places like the Ring of Brodker and uh, Scarabray, please let me know. Just send me an, an email or whatever if, if there's enough demand uh, from this episode, then I will more than happily go back and cover places like uh, the Ring of Brodker and of course Scarabray also. 
Um, so again, uh, you know, just to see somewhere like Maze, how this was the first place I went to in Orkney uh, during my first ever tour up there. Well, the day before, we'd already seen the Italian chapel, the, the Churchill Barriers, etc. Um, now, obviously, I'm talking quite a lot about ancient history uh, with, with this particular podcast, but I do also very, uh, I'm very, very fascinated by things like World War II history, which Orkney has a huge amount of as well. That's why I love Orkney so much. You get recent history, but you also have like the most ancient of ancient histories, history that goes back even further than the pyramids in uh, in in Egypt. You know. Uh, so yeah, so just to finish off this particular episode or this part of the episode, I would just like to read for you some of these amazing runic inscriptions. So just some of the translations uh, for some of these runic uh, inscriptions. Uh, I do need to just want to say to you that uh, one of them does feature a profanity and I'm going to say that profanity because I think, um, as most people know, I'm Scottish, therefore Swearing is part of my general vocabulary, so I'm just going to bring it out for an episode. I think I had one earlier on, but I'm going to bring it out for another episode here. So, so the translations for some of the Maze How runic inscriptions go as such. Uh, things like Ofram, the son of Sigurd, carved these runes. Hermund Hardax carved these runes. Uh, these runes were carved by the man most killed in runes in the Western Ocean, things like that. And then, of course, we have ones that sort of mention uh, more names. So you got Ingeborg, the fair widow. Many a woman has walked stooping in here, a very showy person. And that was signed by someone called Erlinger. Uh, this mound was raised before Ragnar Lothbrok's. Her sons were brave, smooth-hied men, though they were. And, pretty simple and down to the point, thorny fucked, Helgi carved. So even back then, you know, uh, th- there were certain things on uh, even on the Norsemen's minds, so... Uh, but yes, anyway, uh, so for uh, to end off episode number 42 of the Scottish History Podcast, I just want to remind you all of how to get in touch with us, how to follow the podcast. First of all, go to the website www.scotthistorypod.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for the Scottish History Podcast. Uh, the YouTube channel, I've now uh, reached a certain amount of subscribers on there that I was able to uh, make a personalised uh, URL for that. Unfortunately, YouTube were the ones who selected it. So, uh, youtube.com forward slash The Scottish History Podcast, all one word. Uh, so, there is uh, two H's, one between Scottish uh, and uh, and then another one for history. So, youtube.com forward slash the Scottish History Podcast. I'm going to be starting to make some whiskey review videos coming up very, very soon, just once I get all of that sorted. But, uh, yes, yeah, so if you want to see some whiskey reviews from myself, then head across to there. And uh, lastly, if you want to support the podcast, there are now two different ways in which you can do it. Uh, the first one, of course, is the Patreon that I've mentioned in episodes gone by. So that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
dot com forward slash Scott History Pod. On there, you can decide if you want to donate monthly to the podcast. You can cancel at any time, but monthly to the podcast, either one pound or three pounds per month. It'll never go any higher than that. If you want to uh, donate monthly to help with the running costs of this podcast. Um, but also at the request of uh, a couple of listeners as well, very recently, is uh, someone who would perhaps like to just donate one off, uh, you know, a pound, couple of pounds, whatever it is that you would like to donate, uh, just as a one off, you can now do that via buymeacoffee.com. It seemed to be the best option uh, for us. So if you go over to buymeacoffee.com, all one word, and then forward slash Scott History Pod, as per usual, you can make a donation on there. Uh, again, folks, though, it's not entirely necessary whatsoever. Uh, just if you would like to give back, then it's uh, then it's very, very greatly appreciated. So yeah, anyway folks, thank you very much once again for listening. Um, What we're on to next week, I believe that we're going to be carrying on from what we're talking about in episode number 41 back there. So thank you very much for listening and I will speak to you again next week. Mm